There's an hypocrisy at the heart of the cybersecurity industry today. On one hand, everybody you ask will always give the same advice. Never pay ransomware hackers. The FBI explicitly advises companies against paying, and cybersecurity professionals advocate the same line. It's possible that you've heard this sentiment shared at some point right here on this podcast. But what about when push comes to shove and there's no better solution available? On May 7th, 2021, the Colonial Pipeline system supplying oil and jet fuel to the American Southeast was penetrated by a ransomware group called Darkside. To contain the damage, the entire system was shut down. Many of you American listeners might have experienced the fallout firsthand. In cities and small towns alike, gas station lines piled up dozens of cars deep, even in areas not directly serviced by Colonial, simply because everybody was so worried about running out of fuel. With panic spreading across the coast, it was the FBI. The same FBI that tells you not to pay ransomware hackers, which negotiated a payment of $4.4 million worth of Bitcoin to Darkside within mere hours of the breach. Darkside provided a restoration tool in exchange, and five days later, pipeline operations resumed. So what does this tell us about paying ransoms? Should Colonial Pipeline have refused to pay and remained offline, affecting a third of all Americans? What about you or your company? Should you listen to what the experts say or follow what they occasionally do? It's complicated, but we can model this problem. Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. Kei Yut Chen is an experimental economist. Last year, together with two colleagues from the University of Texas at Arlington, he published a paper examining the psychology involved in ransomware attacks through the lenses of game theory. So game theory um, is a mathematical theory um, to look at essentially uh, adversarial uh, interaction, at, at adversarial situations. Okay? Um, it's essentially an analysis of um, what you can do, what I can do, what I can, how I can impact you and how you can impact me. Game theory can be applied to any kind of negotiation in business, politics, or kidnapping in equal part. It provides a framework for analyzing not just how a given party, say a company, may act in a given scenario, but how they will act knowing that their adversary, say a cyber attacker, may react one way or another. Jingu Wang, the second author of the report. So in our case, uh, essentially, both the hackers and the defenders, they are individual decision makers. They are expecting each other's action and then take the next step. What would happen if we took a game-theoretical approach to ransomware? 
Let's imagine a simple scenario, a cyber attacker and a victim, and consider what their options are. So in the, in the most simplest way of thinking about the economics of it, uh, it's just a cost-benefit analysis. So the, the cost is the ransom. The benefit is to get back my business that have a value on it. Every day you lost X million of dollars. You can net present value that out and compare that to if I pay this amount today. In the year before the cyber attack, Colonial Pipeline earned a revenue of around $1.3 billion. Their ransomware payment was $4.4 million, about 0.33% of $1.3 billion. So any business school 101 or economics 101 will say, if the value that you gain back is higher than the cost of paying the ransom, you do it. But uh, as a human, at the same time, we may influenced by other factors. Let us say we want to do good things. We want to look at uh, all the people around us and see how they are doing. And uh, we may also need to factor in, let us say, what is the punishment or what is the regulatory requirement that may be forcing us to do. At the end of the day, nearly everything about the colonial pipeline attack suggested the company should have seceded to Darkseid. Even putting its monetary losses aside, there were legal considerations and immense costs to the country as a whole, which, in the boardroom, must have felt overwhelmingly more important than any mere principle or emotions involved in not wanting to pay criminals. Even in more ordinary circumstances, though, companies face this same kind of pressure. Like, you might really, really hate the idea of paying cyber criminals, but they know that. They want a business model, and so they will make it easy for you to pay. Let's look at it from their perspective. So imagine that you're attacking, you're asking for a ransom. There's only one thing in your mind. You see, you got to pay it. So you're basically balancing two things. I ask for too much money, he may not pay it. If I ask for too little money, I mean, I saw a dollar, he'll pay it right away, but I only got a dollar. By the way, um, this is, again, let's use an economics of marketing example, uh, no difference than any pricing decisions that, you know, a computer manufacturer is deciding how much you charge a computer, charge more, you make more per machine, but you have uh, fewer people that will buy it, and if you charge less, more people buy it, and but you get, you know, a little bit fewer dollars per, per machine. The best, most advanced ransomware groups perform market research, looking up how much their targets have in their coffers in advance of attacking them. That way, they can ask for very healthy ransoms, like $4.4 million, while knowing that for the victim, it's relatively little. The uh, incentive to actually pay them become very, very high because the amount they will ask for is going to be much lower than the value that you lost. So it is in the selfish interest of the um, uh, company uh, to pay. Knowing about their target is also highly useful in negotiations. Often, victims falsely claim that they can't afford to pay, only for their attackers to cite their balance sheets back to them as evidence to the contrary. Not all hackers have their resources or patience to research the victims, or the nature of their operation precludes doing so. 
For example, some groups use a spray-and-pray approach, infecting as many targets as possible with generic phishing emails, for example, or by exploiting known vulnerabilities in unpatched internet-facing servers, then send ransomware to them all in the hopes that as many as possible will pay. In these cases, the attackers set standard ransom demand that may fall well short or beyond what any given target might otherwise pay, but tries to optimize profits when considering the whole pool of targets in aggregate. If we want to get detailed about it, there are a number of other factors that play into the final price that makes the ransom note. So, actually, there's another point that uh, uh, is... It's a relative cost that yeah. carry out the attacks. For example, an opportunity cost, the potential foregone profit from a missed opportunity. Then there are costs to building or buying malware, carrying out infections and negotiations, and paying staff. Like any company, these costs need to be baked into the ransom. In general, though, we have our setup, an attacker and a victim, and a cost that makes it worthwhile for them both to transact. An equilibrium. Nate Nelson, my writer and co-producer. So, we have the ideal theoretical game set up, and then you guys have also studied what people actually do. So, can you explain to me uh, how we irrational human beings mess up this picture and the difference between what you think in a perfect game theory scenario both parties should do and what actually happened. Uh, the first thing you notice in humans are humans are not consistent. They have all these other additional things uh, that go into in through their mind. One component that complicates a ransomware game reaching equilibrium is stubbornness, or shall we say moral righteousness. Consider, as an abstract example, a cyber attacker steals $100 worth of data from you and demands a $99 ransom, or even $95, $90, or $80. In a vacuum, you're losing less by seceding to their demand, but we all know there's no way you take that deal. So there is this sense of kind of um, human fairness, uh, what's appropriate, However, imagine that, I mean, he could have split it 60-40 or 70-30. Whether you pay it or not, it depends a bit on your mood and exactly what you feel at the particular point. So we actually see a lot of noise in the decisions. In other words, the likelihood that you pay a ransom of X amount of dollars for Y data depends not just on you and the data in question, but whom you decide to consult about it, and even the kind of day you're having. Maybe you've hardly slept and so you're on edge, maybe you just had a big meal and you're a little more relaxed, and that tips your decision-making a little in one direction. You won't even realize these subtle influences, but they're there. There are robust studies, for example, demonstrating that judges are more lenient after lunchtime and studies that business people are more receptive to paying large numbers if they've been conditioned with an even larger number very recently beforehand. It becomes a case-by-case -case basis. Now, you can do statistics on it and say on average what happened and so on and so forth. But we see a distribution and people sometimes do, sometimes pay and sometimes not pay and so on and so forth. 
So there's no saying what the exact right ratio is for determining whether a ransom is worth paying or not. But attackers have the advantage here, as they possess a number of tools for tipping the scales in their favor. For example, there's double extortion, threatening not just to withhold stolen data, but also publish it online if their demands are not met. Double extortion rapidly gained popularity during the COVID pandemic and hasn't reversed since. Locking up your data is a reversible action. You know, I lock up your data, I give you the key, you re reverse it, you lose a few days of business. But other than that, you know, that doesn't harm your basic business. This action, this uh, double extortion to release your data into the wild, um, will, the company will take a hit in terms of the reputation. There might be uh, consequences uh, from the customer, like a lawsuit. There may be consequences from the government. And once it's happened, you cannot take it back. Imagine a healthcare company or a finance or government organization and all the personal data they maintain. The threat of losing that to the dark web may be even more significant than whatever the cost would have been for losing and having to replace it. Attackers also have more subtle tactics than this to help convince victims to pay up. One strange trend that began to emerge at the turn of the decade was that cybercriminals stopped acting like cybercriminals traditionally did. Instead, they presented themselves as businesses, taking on a very professional tone in their emails and text conversations, with fewer childish threats and far more references to cooperation and deals. It wasn't just an act, either. They really did operate more like businesses, with management structures, clean websites, payment portals, customer service representatives, and more. I just want to say, I mean, you think about it, it is a business, right? You, 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 I mean, they did create a problem, okay? right? They create a problem, uh, but they actually are selling a solution. So, uh, and so everything that you think about business, um, efficiency, uh, can you get the customer to pay, it's a little bit perverse. All those ideas all applied, right? You want to minimize, you want to minimize costs, maximize revenue, you want economy of scale. The reason they started presenting more like businesses, though, was to solve a specific problem. Whenever agencies or experts advise companies not to pay ransomware attackers, they always cite the same fact that paying them doesn't necessarily guarantee you'll actually get your data back. Indeed, in many cases, attackers don't even have a remediation tool for unlocking the data they've locked up. As you can imagine, <laughs> if the defenders pay the money and they still cannot get, the, get, get back the uh, product, or get back the data, the system then, just like a customer buying a bad product and then in a better quality, then nobody going to trust them in a certain way to continue to pay. Experts could cite this as a good reason why companies shouldn't pay their attackers back when it was true. And victims could look at this as a reason to only pay very small ransoms. Anything more would be too much of a risk. 
So over time, more and more attackers consciously stuck to their promises, over and over again holding up to their part of the deal and speaking to their victims not as victims to be frightened, but business partners to be dealt with. So yes, it seems this is quite important uh, for them to maintain a good reputation. Nowadays, if you're hacked by one of the brand name ransomware groups, Lockbit, for example, or Clop, you can most likely expect them to hold up their end of the bargain. That encourages victims to pay and pay more because the risk is lower and the likelihood of being able to quickly resume normal business operation is higher. The picture isn't quite that simple with lesser known actors and with companies that have fewer resources to invest in their cybersecurity. According to a March survey by Barracuda Networks, 38% of companies that paid their ransoms were attacked for a second time. Some companies that keep paying get hit over and over, as one might expect when dealing with cyber grifters. Anyone who knows this will be less likely to pay their ransom, or even if they do pay, pay less, as doing so may effectively reduce the demands that an attacker might return with in any follow-on attacks. They're coming for it. Your personal data, your intellectual property, your business. Cyber attackers are working to take what belongs to you and holding you to ransom. Defenders don't fear ransomware. They end it. With CyberReason, defenders detect and stop ransomware that even others miss every time. This is not just a product, it's a mission. CyberReason gives you the upper hand against ransomware and all other cyber attacks. At CyberReason, we don't fear ransomware. We end it. Learn more at cyberreason.com ransom. All of these considerations, all these advantages the attackers have to exfiltrate and publish data or come back for seconds or thirds, start to add up and make the decision-making process far more difficult for the victim in our game theory scenario than we'd previously thought when we said it was just a matter of the ransom versus value of the data lost. This is why it's so important for companies to try to stack the odds in their favor even before the game starts. For example, let's add a third wrinkle onto the situation. So ransomware situation, possibility for data exfiltration. Now the victim has cyber insurance. Cyber insurance seems like it would be a great solution to the problem of ransomware, covering companies for when the worst happens. But Kayut and Jingu's next published paper, not released yet as of the publication of this podcast, will explore the more nuanced ways in which insurance affects the parties to our game. Insurance could be an, uh, possible mistake, still could be a possible risk mitigation tool for the organization regarding ransomware attack, but it is not a perfect solution. The conventional wisdom is that this is like your house insurance, your car insurance. Something bad happened, you suffer a loss, and the insurance companies will cover that. But having said that, from the attacker perspective, 
uh, it's actually a completely different story. Again, I'll contrast that with, uh, let's say that uh, you have uh, health insurance to insure against fire and other natural disasters. Now, natural disaster doesn't have a mind of their own and doesn't know that you have insurance. It will just hit with some chance and you are basically protected, you know, uh, yourself from random chances of a natural disaster. The key difference is that attackers, they have a mind of their own and they can have information. They can react to your insurance. A company with cyber insurance will care a lot less about having to pay even a big ransom. And the attacker in our game knows this. It's basically like, well, you have insurance. Your insurance cover up to a million bucks. You are not going to pay the million bucks. They are. Whether a company has cyber insurance or not, and whether that cyber insurance covers ransomware attacks or not, will not necessarily be public information. But companies of a certain size will be more likely to have more robust insurance coverage, and so attackers can play those odds. Furthermore, as ransomware attacks rise in general, more companies will want insurance to cover it. So more ransomware means more ransomware coverage, thereby, in theory, enabling higher ransom demands. So, so that is also a tough a situation that nowadays the insurance company is facing, as you may read a lot of news, that some insurance companies think that we do not want to co- provide coverage on the ransomware attack, or they impose a very strict requirement in terms of what to be covered, what not to be covered uh, related with a uh, cyber attack. We've explored thus far how each party to a ransomware attack might behave under theoretical circumstances. But we haven't yet addressed the fundamental root flaw giving power to the attacker player in our game and crippling the victim player. Um, actually, there's an HO term for the situation applied not only to ransomware, but similar situation called tragedy of the commons. Imagine a town or a city that wants to build a park. And so if everybody chip in the five bucks, ten bucks or whatever, uh, then you get a park and everybody can enjoy it. However, from a private perspective, you don't want to pay for the park, right? You want somebody else to pay for the park. If everybody else pay for the park, my, my little few dollars, my five, ten dollars doesn't really matter that much. Now, the standard argument is that if everybody thinks like that, then you have no park. Well, Unfortunately, you know, it's human nature sometimes to lock off our only interest. The tragedy of the commons has implications for matters so minor as whether you return your shopping cart after leaving the grocery store, or so monumental as whether humanity can ever one day stop climate change. It is the classic game theory problem. I want to drive instead of taking the train to work, but everybody driving around the world is contributing to the buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere. If I stop driving, it won't really make a difference at all to the whole planet. But if everybody does, it will. But I can't make everybody do that. It's extremely a hard situation, and most of the time, it's almost impossible to get everybody to either pitch in or, or, or band together. 
As we've established, sophisticated attackers will set ransoms low enough that it is in the best interests of a victim to pay. By paying, though, the victim is not only encouraging the attacker to attack another victim, but actively funding their efforts to do so. Anyone in Colonial Pipeline's position would have paid the Dark Side group, but those $4.4 million, specifically the $2.1 million they retained even after US officials managed to seize the rest, could have been reinvested in hiring more hackers, building better tools, and carrying out more attacks. It's hard to imagine any solution to a tragedy of the commons problem, where the commons is the whole world. It's why every year, when countries get together to discuss climate change, they leave making vague promises and hardly any progress. But we, as a society, have solved tragedy of the commons scenarios before. In modern society, we do have ways to do some versions of it. Like We do have parks in the cities, and a lot of it is done by taxation. Like governments taxing citizens to build parks, some experts are exploring how the government, law enforcement, and victims themselves can help solve the ransomware of the commons. Let's start with victims. If everybody refused to pay ransoms, ransomware would end tomorrow. But as we've established, it's not as simple as that. What anyone can do, however, is learn about ransomware and invest as much as possible in preventing it from ever happening to you. Make it not worth the while of an attacker to attack you. Uh, make your security system more robust, so cost them more to hack into it. By investing in effective cybersecurity solutions, implementing robust systems for data backups, and educating employees about cyber hygiene best practices, a company is not only protecting itself, it's also reducing the pool of potential targets for attackers. If enough companies do this, attackers won't have enough viable victims to feed their business model. A win-win. On the other aspect, Surely, I applaud the FBI's action as nowadays they're taking down the ransomware groups, they're taking down their ecosystems. Uh, that would be the most direct way to fight with uh, ransomware attacks. U.S. law enforcement has already played a significant role in taking down previously thriving ransomware groups like Conti and Hive find them and prosecute them, that's a cost, right? That's the cost of going to jail is a huge cost. And so I think that probably is the direction that policymaker should be thinking. It's, it, it's really about um, how to make it not profitable, how to make them not profitable so they will not do this business anymore. Governments can also make a difference with policy. The state government maybe introduce or the federal government maybe need to introduce or provide some resources to help those uh, entities or organizations to boost up their uh, security management, their security uh, practices. They can set up role models, set up benchmarks and minimum standard and things like such, at least increasing the cost for the hackers to get into the system. 
Every October, for three years in a row now, the U.S. government has convened representatives from around the world on the matter of how to combat ransomware. And just earlier this year, not even for the first time, it considered implementing an outright ban on paying ransoms, with waivers only for critical service providers. In theory, a ban could, on its own, solve the tragedy of the commons problem. As the US National Security Advisor Anne Neuberger stated in a May presentation, quote, Fundamentally, money drives ransomware, and for an individual entity, it may be that they make a decision to pay, but for the larger problem of ransomware, that is the wrong decision. End quote. If you prevent it on the individual level, it fixes the problem on the global level. But months earlier, at a tech conference, Neuberger also explained how, quote, it is so hard, and so much more work needs to be done to improve the security of tech, to improve the cybersecurity of systems, that we'd essentially be pressing victims to make their payments go undercover. End quote. Cybersecurity already has a reporting problem. Forcing companies to put the greater good first might only make it worse. And even if there were a ban, it might require more than just one law in one country. We saw a microcosm of this in 2022, when the state of North Carolina banned all government agencies for paying ransomware actors, but attacks didn't slow down. To the threat actors, it was nothing, hardly even worth their effort to take one state off its radar. According to a 2022 report from Suffis, more than half of state and local governments across 31 countries were attacked with ransomware in the year 2021 alone. And a report from the AI threat intergroup CloudSec X Visual indicated that ransomware attacks against governments rose 95% in the second half of 2022 from those already record high levels. To really solve this problem will require cooperation between all these countries at the same time. A kind of international ransomware embargo. Which is why, in advance of its third ransomware summit, the National Security Council called on other governments around the world to publicly commit to never paying cyber ransoms again. It remains to be seen now whether, after whatever the next colonial pipeline attack may be, they'll have the backbone to stick to that promise. Or if, like the players in our theoretical game, they'll simply settle on another, more acceptable equilibrium. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. As many of you have probably heard, we in Israel are having a tough two weeks, to put it mildly. Luckily for me, I live a good distance from where all the action is, but we lost a former producer of ours, a talented young guy by the name of Dor Shafir, and another producer, Shani Berger, lost her mother and was injured herself. There's no politics in malicious life, of course, but I just want to thank all of our wonderful listeners who reached out to me via Twitter and LinkedIn to ask how I'm doing and send their support. 
So shout outs to regular John, Steve from scamkillers.org, Apendra Thapa, Peter Nowak, Joanne Gitau, and Skater Flo the Engineer from Huntsville, Alabama. Thank you all very, very much. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by Nate Nilsson, edited by myself, and Shelly Guetta did the sound design. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife, or follow me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. If you or your organization are looking for an interesting talk about cybersecurity, for example, the story of Stuxnet, the first cyber weapon, or about the current AI revolution, you can reach out to me via Twitter or by mail, ran at ranlevy.com. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.